Wasn't it great to see some of our kids this morning and hear why they're grateful for their moms? Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there and to those of you who have had moms and to those of you who have been like moms. I'm grateful for you all, not only this morning, but especially this morning as we celebrate Mother's Day. I also want to say good morning to all of our Confirmands out there. You guys are the newest members of Trinity, and I'm proud of you for taking this step to profess your faith and join the body of Christ. As we dive into this morning's message, I want to remind you all that we're in a new series that started just last week. We're calling this series Digital Babylon, Resilient Faith for Exiles. Along with this series, we've also started a Sunday evening sermon chat via Zoom. The information was sent out about that meeting uh, in the church email yesterday, but if you didn't get that email, you can mark on your digital connect card that you'd like to receive that info, and we'll get it out to you uh, before that 7.30 meeting this evening. In this series, we're looking at what it means to develop resilient disciples in the face of cultural coercion. We're trying to answer the question, how do we remain faithful to Jesus in digital Babylon? If you haven't seen last week's message that kind of sets the stage, I encourage you to watch it on our YouTube channel or download the podcast and, and give it a listen. But just to remind us of some of the numbers, 22% of young adults who have grown up in the church walk away from their faith. We call them prodigals. 30% drift out of the church. And we call them nomads. And 38% stay in the church without really embracing the values and practices of the church. We call them churchgoers. Only 10% of those who grow up in the church go on to become resilient disciples. I mentioned last week that there are five practices that have either marked or formed these resilient disciples. These practices help answer five key formative questions. Questions everyone has to answer. Questions like, who am I really? How should I live? Am I loved? Which is going to be our focus today. You see, the world is more connected than ever. I regularly listen to podcasts from New York, Toronto, Melbourne, London. Um, it was unimaginable a hundred years ago that you could listen to sermons from anywhere in the world anytime you wanted. A few weeks ago, Meg and I called my sister and her husband in Uganda to pray with them over the phone. I've got 1,100 friends on Facebook, even though I think only 50 of them actually show up in my newsfeed. But while we're so connected, people feel more lonely and less known than ever. In fact, people in America are twice as likely to say they're lonely than they were even just 10 years ago. You see, when we're living in digital Babylon, we can also live in something of a digital bubble. Think about how much of life we can do without interacting with any real human people. Online banking, self-checkout, email, mobile ordering, Amazon, Facebook. Don't get me wrong, these things have been super helpful during this COVID-19 disruption. But when it's become our normal, everyday life, it actually has a disembodying effect on us. It's like our existence is somehow disconnected from these physical bodies. Just think of the things that people 
are willing to say via text or email that they'd never say in person to someone's face. This digital bubble fosters the idea of a my-sized life. In Digital Babylon, where you live via your disembodied mind and, and your body no longer matters, you can be whoever you want to be. The emphasis is on individualization. Life is me first. I mean, we even stopped taking photographs, and now all we take are selfies. This makes it easier than ever to insulate ourselves by surrounding ourselves with only those who are most like us. If you like to Photoshop human arms onto birds, or if you like to share pictures of carpet found in airports, or if you want to see people getting slapped in the face with an eel, there's a group out there in Digital Babylon for you. And while it's true that birds of a feather flock together and we naturally get together with people like us, it's an entirely different thing to hole up in your nest. There's a rising idea that we can even live as Christians on our own. That our discipleship can be a solo effort. That we can have a private spirituality where it's just me and Jesus. But friends, it's just not true. Our faith is definitely personal, but it was never meant to be private. As we focus more on, on our individualization, we become more mistrusting of people and leaders, authority and institutions, and that includes God and the church. There's this attitude of skepticism towards leaders in the world today. And as we relate more exclusively with those who are like us, we tend to buy into those stereotypes more. I mean, just look at the clergy abuse scandals that have happened in recent years, and you, you can see it only reinforces this negative perception. It's evident in the snarky, sarcastic humor that's popular these days. Think of the TV show The Office and the humor you see there. It just encourages people to become cynical and guarded. And bosses, those people in authority, are viewed with suspicion. In digital Babylon, we rely on technology to mediate our relationships. And it's only left us feeling lonely, isolated, skeptical, and mistrusting. So that's the problem we're facing, or at least some of the problem we're facing. But I want to take a few minutes this morning, and I want to look at the story of Ruth and Naomi. Jake read the introduction to their story for us, and the rest of the book of Ruth tells us what happened because of the choices made in these first verses. In fact, the book of Ruth is only four chapters long, and I'd encourage you to take 20 minutes later, read the whole thing. Naomi and her family, her husband and her two sons, they moved from Bethlehem to Moab because of a famine in the area. Now, if you don't know, Moab isn't part of Israel. It was the land inhabited by the descendants of one of Lot's sons, Lot being the nephew of Abraham, who was the father of the nation of Israel. More recently in the story, while the Israelites were on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land following those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the king of Moab, Moab had hired the prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites. And Numbers 23 says that because of that choice, Moabites were prohibited from entering the assembly of the Lord. It wasn't exactly the best of relationships. 
But they go to Moab, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. Her sons go on to marry a couple of Moabite women, and they both die as well. So you have these three widows living together. But in those days, women couldn't own property or a business, so these women were vulnerable and at risk. At some point later, Naomi hears that the famine in Israel is over, and she decides to return to her people. But she has these two Moabite women who are depending on her. And the cultural norm at that time was that if a married man died without a son to carry on his lineage, his brother would marry the wife and produce an heir for the dead brother. But Naomi tells her daughter-in-law that they're going to have a much better chance of remarrying and being provided for if they go back to their families, back to their own people. You see, in Israel, they would only ever be outsiders. So Naomi tells them to go home. They cry together. They refuse to leave her. They cry some more. Naomi insists, and finally Orpah decides she's going to go back to her family. But Ruth is resolved. She's not going to leave Naomi. The rest of the book tells the story of their return to Bethlehem and Ruth's courtship with Boaz, who was a distant relative to Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Over the course of that story, we see the relationship between Naomi and Ruth deepen. I get the sense that Naomi becomes more like a mother to Ruth than a mother-in-law. And there's a mutuality to their relationship where, where Ruth helps to provide for Naomi by gathering in the fields, and Naomi counsels and advises Ruth. This meaningful intergenerational relationship was exactly what they both needed, not just to survive, but to thrive. And that is exactly what we need today if we are going to develop followers of Jesus who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and live a vibrant life in the spirit. Meaningful relationships are one of the five practices that form resilient disciples. 85% of resilient disciples say they have someone in their life who encourages them to grow spiritually. For churchgoers, that number drops to 50. For nomads, it's 31. For prodigals, it's 23. And it's interesting to me that the biggest drop happens between resilient disciples and churchgoers. I'd expect it to be between churchgoers and nomads. But I think it's significant reality, and it's uh, consistent across the research. I'm not going to take time in these sermons to go through all the data, but if you're interested, we can talk about those things in the Sunday evening chat. But the key thing is, 85% of resilient disciples have someone speaking into their life about spiritual things. The kind of meaningful relationships experienced by resilient disciples don't just happen on their own, though. There are four things required for meaningful relationships to develop. Number one, meaningful relationships require the kind of people we want to spend time around and become like. I mean, it's really hard to build meaningful relationships if no one wants to be around you or grow to be like you. James Fowler and Nicholas Christakis, in their book Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives, they tell us that we become the average of the five people we spend the most time with. 
If your five closest friends gain 10 pounds, chances are you will too. If the five people you spend the most time with start running, chances are you will too. The people we surround ourselves with matter. And therefore, it also matters what kind of person you are becoming. Number two, meaningful relationships have to be cultivated intentionally. There needs to be a desired outcome, a purpose that's understood. You see, it takes work to make these relationships happen and to make them a priority in the midst of the busyness of day-to-day, week-to-week life. Number three, this kind of relationship is going to require more than Sunday morning. Worshiping together is a good thing. It's a great thing. It's core to who we are as followers of Jesus. But on its own, Sunday morning worship isn't going to foster the kind of relationships that develop this resilient faith. This is especially true when we're worshiping at home during this COVID disruption. We need other shared experiences, other points of connection. We've got to spend time together building those relationships. Number four, meaningful relationships are going to require vulnerability on both sides. It's not just about the older person in the relationship uh, getting a chance to lecture the younger person. And it's not just about the younger person in the relationship patronizing the older person. It's about being open and honest with one another and realizing that we both have something to learn and something to offer to the other. One of the questions we as humans unconsciously bring to our mothers is this. Am I worth it? Am I worth the sleepless nights and the hours of worry? Am I worth the inconveniences that are caused and and the stretch marks? It's really just another way of asking, am I loved? Some of us got that answered really well by our moms. Some of us didn't. But all of us need that question answered by people in our lives other than our moms. We need those kinds of mentors in our lives. People who can teach us how to have rich, meaningful, face-to-face relationships. Let's be real. You're not going to learn it on YouTube or Facebook. And Siri doesn't have a clue about real relationships. We also need those people in our lives who can help us translate faithfulness into the context of exile. Often those younger people who understand the culture, but maybe need to learn what faithfulness means, what it looks like over the course of a lifetime. Ruth and Naomi forged a meaningful intergenerational relationship. And the result wasn't just that Ruth found a new husband. The result we find is at the end of the book of Ruth, chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. So Ruth, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. 
The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's King David, by the way. Because of the relationship forged between Naomi and Ruth, Ruth went from being an outsider to being the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. You don't get any more insider than that. The question I want to leave you with this morning is this. Whose spiritual lineage does God want to plug you into? Who does God want to use you to help them go from being an outsider to being an insider? Whose life are you going to pour into so that they can become a resilient disciple who stands firm and lives faithfully in the face of cultural coercion? Would you pray with me? God, we're so grateful this morning for the mothers in our lives and for those who have been like mothers, who have been spiritual mothers. We're grateful for the people who have taken time out of their lives to uh, to pour it into ours, who you've used to shape us and mold us. God, we're grateful that you don't leave us alone. You bring other people alongside us. When you made Adam, you, you looked and you saw and you said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so you created Eve to come alongside him. We're made to be in relationship, God. And so we pray that you would help us in these days to identify who are those people that you're calling us to develop meaningful relationships with so that we can continue to develop that resilient faith that we need to live faithful lives in the face of cultural coercion and we can live vibrant lives in the spirit. Would you help us? Would you put some people on our hearts? Maybe it's an older person we need to ask to mentor us. Maybe it's a younger person we need to uh, reach out to and offer to walk through life with. Maybe it's a peer who we need to come alongside and say, let's figure this out together because the stakes are too high for us not to figure out what it means to develop a resilient faith, to live as faithful disciples, faithful followers of Jesus in the midst of digital Babylon. So we pray that you'd help us. In Jesus' name, amen.